Well, thank you for your welcome. Great to be here with you this morning. I'm certainly not sad to see the snow disappear, I must admit, because this last week I've been uh, teaching Ecclesiastes and Lamentations in the snowbound forests of Sweden. I've seen plenty of snow. It's a Bible school where every time you do a lecture, you've got to leave an extra 10 minutes to get there because you have to sweep the snow from the path so you can actually... Uh, dig your way through to the, the, the lecture hall. So I, I was sort of t- saying to people all week, oh, no, 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 we don't get much snow in Devon. You know, we're, uh, we're by the sea, and it's, it's the warmest part of Britain. And no, 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 no. And then, of course, you put on the computer one night when you're just about ready to come home, and you see 100 cars stranded on the E30. <laughs> and think, oh, dear me. But never mind. It's, it's great. It's all gone again. And uh, here we are. Um, let's read then, shall we, from Matthew's Gospel. You're uh, coming towards the end of Matthew's Gospel. Well done, you're almost all the way through it. And we're in chapter 26. And we're going to read some, some verses from uh, verse 47 onwards. And uh, you remember, if you if you've, uh, were here for earlier parts of this series, that we've reached the point where Jesus has uh, had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's taken them out after that to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been praying, they've been sleeping, and um, while he's still talking to them, waking them up, something happens. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. That's our reading. So if we could have the, that's great, lovely. This is what we're talking about this morning then, the arrest of Jesus. And uh, this is a a story that's been told down through history, pictured in art, the kiss of Judas. Uh, There have been dramas and plays and all sorts of things about it. But the question I guess we have to ask this morning is, first and foremost, why is this thing not doing anything? Uh, Which it isn't. Have I got to switch anything on? No, I haven't. Oh, we're working. Okay. The question we've got to ask is, what's going on in this story? What's actually happening? Because people have reinterpreted it many times down through the years. This is getting a bit uh, interesting here. Come on. There we go. Okay. Just uh, 10, 13 years ago, uh, there was a great deal of fuss about this document here. It's called the Gospel of Judas. And it was supposed to be a new gospel that had suddenly emerged in which a very different story was told about the arrest of Jesus. It was told from Judas's point of view. National Geographic paid a fortune to buy the manuscript, uh, although nobody's still quite sure where exactly it came from. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. All right. Not, not a problem. Okay, fine. I'll just, I'll just uh, look meaningfully at Kev every time we want to, to shift the, 
no power button. That's not a problem. Sorry, we've had a lot of problems this morning. Uh, this, my equipment has behaved perfectly well all the week in Sweden, and here we are at Great Parks, and yeah, there you go. It's the curse of getting back to Devon. Yep, and uh, National Geographic, who bought the things, uh, said, the text begins by announcing that it is the secret account of the revelation that Jesus spoke in conversation with Judas Iscariot during a week, three days before he celebrated Passover. In other words, it's not really a gospel. It tells you nothing about the birth of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the things Jesus said, the, the story of the disciples, any of that. It's just a conversation between Jesus and Judas. So it's not really a gospel. It goes on to describe Judas as Jesus' closest friend, someone who understands Christ's true message and is singled out for special status among the disciples. Now, that's unusual, isn't it? In the key passage, Jesus tells Judas, you will exceed all of them, that's the disciples who are pretty stupid, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. And the leader of the translation project said, Jesus says it is necessary for someone to free him finally from his human body and he prefers that this liberation be done by a friend rather than by an enemy. So he asks Judas, who is his friend, to sell him out, to betray him. It's treason to the general public, but between Jesus and Judas, it's not treachery. So according to this theory, what was happening here in the arrest of Jesus was a put-up job. Jesus knew Judas was going to do it. In fact, he'd fixed it between them. Because Jesus wanted to die. He wanted to leave behind the man who lives outside me, the body I'm in. And he wanted to go off to a new spiritual realm. Well, it's it's an interesting theory. Can we see the next one, Kev? And uh, it's been knocked by Christians ever since it was written. This is Irenaeus, who lived in the second century. And around about the time, I guess, when that book, The Gospel of Judas, was first being written. And Irenaeus said, right from the start... In one of his most famous books, this document exists, but it's wrong. It's put together by a bunch of heretics who believe that the body is evil and for Jesus to be in a body too long was dangerous to his spirituality. And they didn't believe Jesus was the son of God, just that he was an angelic being who was going on from one uh, uh, sphere of reality to another. And so the crucifixion was all about him leaving this world and going on into a new exalted sphere. And Judas helped him get there. And irony said, what a load of rubbish. That's not the Christian faith at all. So right from the start, Christians were looking at the book and saying, ah, rubbish. But uh, more recently, too, if you click it again, there's this lady, April DeConnick, uh, who's a professor at Rice University in America, has written an interesting book saying, they've got it all wrong. Now, Dr. DeConnick is one of the experts on uh, the, the, the Greek of this time and the religious cults of this time. And she says, next one, uh, in, in, in one of her books, uh, called The 13th Apostle, they've got all of this wrong. Click it again, please, and we'll see something highlighted here. That's, that's the thing. While National Geographic's translation supported the provocative interpretation of Judas as a hero, a more careful reading makes it clear that Judas is not only no hero, he's a demon. <laughs> so she says, they've got the Greek completely wrong. They've misread the text completely. And so that means, if we go on to the next one, we've got several clicks in quick succession here. One, thank you. It was a book that was written at least a century after Jesus by people who didn't know him and didn't know anything about the circumstances or the background of his life. Two, it tells us nothing about Jesus' life. Three, it was dismissed from the very beginning as a spurious claim. Four, it offers no evidence for its ideas whatsoever. It just makes the claim that Jesus said this to Judas and we know. And five, we can't even work out what it's really saying about Judas. So why the big fuss? Why spend so much money on it? It doesn't seem a very plausible claim. But it's just one illustration of the fact that lots of people have thought they knew what was going on. 
in this passage we've read, and they've interpreted it differently. And that was true for some of the very first people who were there. For example, next one. Four people thought they knew what was happening. One of those was Judas. Another one was Peter. Another one was Malchus. Now, his name doesn't actually appear in our passage, but we know that was his name from the, one of the other gospel accounts. He was the guy who found himself suddenly um, hearing impaired when Peter helpfully did a surgical operation with his sword on his ear. He was a servant of the high priest, and when Peter got excited and started slashing about, Malchus's ear was the first thing that went. So he thought he knew what was going on as well. And finally, fourth, you've got the person who did know what was going on, and that was Jesus. So let's just have a look at what those four people thought. Next one, please. Judas uh, thought a bribe was being earned. Next one. Uh, Peter thought a trap was being sprung. And Malchus thought a criminal was being arrested, whereas Jesus would have put it like this. A cup was being drained. Let's just examine those things. Let's look at Judas first. So Judas... Oh, yeah, uh, strange fonts. I'm sorry. Uh, something has happened to this, this presentation in the course of the morning. But anyway, Jesus, uh, Judas, next one, thank you, thought that a bribe was being earned. As far as he was concerned, this was a simple transaction. He had gone to the high priests and offered to sell Jesus. That's right. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you, he'd said. And they'd fixed a price. Fairly derisory price, but it was a lot of money to somebody like Judas. And that was par for the course for him. Because we know that he was not the most honest of people. For some staggering reason, Jesus had given him control of the group's finances. He was the one who kept the bag. But he kept on dipping into it and taking out money for himself. And uh, he was somebody who thought, I think, that he'd hoodwink just about everybody. And he felt he could hoodwink Jesus and the other disciples here. I think what he was trying to do was very simply to get himself some money without killing off the Jesus movement. I don't think he expected Jesus to be taken and crucified. I'll tell you why in a moment. Let's move on to the next one, though. You see, he'd been at the Last Supper, and to his amazement, I think, he'd been seated in the place of honour, because to sit at the left hand of the host, and that was Jesus, was a great honour, and that's where they put Judas So he wasn't sure what was going on. But in the course of the evening, he heard to his horror, Jesus say, one of you people is going to betray me tonight. And the disciples all started saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And so he tried to answer, Jesus, is is it I? And Jesus, being very close to him, said, yep, yep, it's you. And so he knew that Jesus knew something. And later on, next one, please. Jesus looks across the table and says, whatever you're going to do, you go do it. The other disciples thought that Jesus had given him some instructions about going out to get some food or something like that. But anyway, that gave Judas his clue to leave. So he knew that Jesus knew. He knew that he wasn't going to pass himself off as completely innocent afterwards. But the other disciples didn't. And I don't think that Judas expected everything to turn out the way it did. If you look at the next one. This is what he said when he was he was uh, when Jesus was taken and tried. I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. That's in chapter twenty-seven, and you'll get to that. And that verse starts when Jesus saw that Jesus, when Judas, sorry, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was filled with remorse. He never expected Jesus to be condemned. What did he expect? We just don't know. 
Did he expect Jesus to do some kind of miracle that would change the whole thing around? Possible. But I'm not sure that Judas believed too much in, 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 in Jesus' heavenly powers because um, uh, the way he operated doesn't seem to suggest that. Did he, suggest, did he feel, and think this is more likely, that Jesus would have a discussion with the high priests and the leaders and they would sort their differences out between them and then the Jesus movement would go on just the way it was? And hopefully, because Judas had not really played much of a role in this, he just kissed Jesus in front of the other disciples. Hopefully, the other disciples wouldn't notice that anything was wrong. Judas would get the money and everything would be okay. Well, that's certainly what Matthew Henry, the old commentator, thought. So we can put his, his words up there. Oh dear, nothing fits in the right boxes, I'm afraid. But still, Judas, it's probable, expected that either Christ would have made his escape out of their hands, said Matthew Henry, or would so have pleaded his own cause at their bar as to have come off, and then Christ would have had the honour, the Jews the shame, and he the money, and no harm done. This he had no reason to expect, because he had so often heard his master say that he must be crucified. Yet, it is probable that he did expect it. And when the event did not answer his vain fancy, then he fell into this horror when he saw the stream strong against Christ and him yielding to it. I never expected this. This wasn't supposed to happen. This wasn't what was going on. I was simply making a bit of money on the side. And Matthew Henry goes on to say, those who measure actions by the consequences of them rather than by the divine law will find themselves mistaken in their measures. The way of sin is downhill. And if we cannot easily stop ourselves, much less can we stop others who we have set a going in a sinful way. You think you know how people are going to act? Well, you don't. And if you think you can cut corners and do things in a, a backhanded kind of a way that's not quite ethical, you're going to end up in the soup one way or another. So uh, Judas probably thought he'd started something in motion that was not going to be that big. But when Jesus was condemned, he suddenly realized what he had done. And the next one, please. So Judas realized something. And sorry, all of the colors and things are, are different in your version of PowerPoint. But no, mind. Jesus was not going to come out of this alive. And his realization of that changed his whole interpretation of what was going on here. Second one. Let's look at the next person. That's Peter. <laughs> and Peter, what did he expect? Well, next. Thank you. He thought that a trap was being sprung. He just realized there was this great crowd with clubs and, and swords coming out. And Peter had a dagger under his coat. Just a short sword, a makarios is the Greek word that's used. It wasn't a great sort of claymore that he was swinging around like that. But see, he had this under his coat and probably he kept it on him because he had a half suspicion that Jesus was, uh, had enemies and uh, Jesus wasn't very good at looking after himself. Peter was somebody who'd always thought he'd known better than Jesus. He'd always seen himself as the chief disciple. He was the one that walked on the water, wasn't he? He and James and John were the three that were invited to go and have a look at Jairus' daughter when Jesus raised her from the dead. And they were the ones that had been there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter was pretty special, he thought. And he might have been miffed, actually, at the, 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 the Last Supper a little bit, because it looks as if the seat he was put in was the servant's seat around the table. And that wasn't great. Uh, and uh, he, uh, Jesus was sending mixed signals because later on he came round and washed everybody's feet, which was the job of a servant. And Peter said, oh, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus looked at him and said, look, if I don't do that, you've got no part in me at all. And Peter's thinking, do I belong? Do I not belong? Am I special? Am I not special? What's going on? I'll have to show him how important I am. And so later on when Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me, 
Peter standing up, no, no, Lord, no. And we can put the next bit up if you like. Uh, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then the other disciples start saying, yeah, yeah, we're in this to the death. Yes, yes, Jesus. But he was the first and he felt good about that. And so naturally, when they're out in the garden of Gethsemane and this great crowd appears around Jesus, he thinks, right, defend Jesus. A trap has been sprung. I'll get in first and then I'll be the hero of the battle. I'll start them all fighting. And then perhaps in the confusion, Jesus can slip away or something like that. And so he starts slicing off ears. Hmm. And then he he had to realize something too. Next one, please. He had to realize he wasn't what he thought he was. This is Peter. A few hours later, when he's denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted he would, suddenly come to the end of himself. And he realized through this whole arrest story something different. Jesus was doing something that Peter couldn't help him with. There's a point beyond which he can't organize Jesus. (laughs) He can't tell Jesus what to do because Jesus actually knows better than Peter. But up to that point, he was just so confident and full of himself. Then there was a third one, Malchus. He's an interesting one, isn't he? And uh, Malchus was the servant of the high priest. Now, that means slave of the high priest. So he didn't have a very high status. And we don't really know what job Malchus had. Although the fact that the the gospel says he was the servant of the high priest uh, suggests that he was a special well-known one. Maybe he was his confidant. Maybe he was his secretary. Maybe he was there to boss the whole operation, and that's why Peter went for him. We just don't know. But I'm pretty certain that what Malchus thought was happening was that just a criminal was being arrested. A troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, somebody who could tip the balance in that powder keg that was Jerusalem and get the Romans to to, to come in and do something unfortunate that would result in bloodshed. And Jesus had to be stopped before his wild words went too far. And then suddenly, Malchus finds himself without one ear. (laughs) Actually, the, the Greek of the Gospels apparently suggests that it wasn't severed completely, it was just hanging off by a thread. Sorry to do that to you before your lunch, but that's, that's what it says. Okay. Uh, coffee in it? No, never. But, uh, um, this is an interesting one, isn't it? One of the Gospels, not this one, the Gospel of Luke, which is written by a doctor, mind you, says that Jesus healed Malchus straight away. And uh, you might wonder, well, how on earth could Jesus do the last miracle of healing he did on earth and nobody really notice? I mean, why would you arrest him after he'd just done something wonderful like that? And I think the answer has got to be there's lots of confusion going around. If we can see the next one, Kev. Peter has just grabbed his sword. He's attacked Malchus with it in the background there. And uh, Malchus, to his horror, finds he's disfigured. His his ear is gone. And uh, then, next one, thank you. And then uh, Jesus grabs Peter and says, put your sword back in its place. Do you think I cannot call on my father for more than 12 legions of angels? And Malchus, hearing his voice with his one good ear, (laughs) realizes this guy really believes what he's saying. He really does believe that he could call down angels to help him, and he won't. He's determined to go through with this, whatever it is. And just to see he's, he's taking on board, this fellow is serious. He's not just a, a, a rabble-rouser. He's not just somebody who's hot-headed. He's somebody who's really brave because he believes what he's saying. Just as that thought goes through his mind, he feels hands on his ears. And he oh, I can hear in stereo once again. <laughs> And his ears back to normal. And I think it happened in the darkness and the confusion and the struggle in such a way that most people probably didn't even notice what was happening. But Malchus knew. And I wonder how that affected Malchus for the rest of his life. It's possible 
that we know his name just because he was such a prominent servant of the the priest. Or it's possible that later on he became a Christian. (laughs) We know that when names are given in the gospel stories, often that's a sign that the people later on have a connection to the Christian community. Do you remember Simon Cyrene, the man who was made to carry Jesus' cross when he was on the way to Calvary? It says in the Gospels that he was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Who on earth were they? We have no idea. But clearly, the first readers of that Gospel did. They knew Rufus. They knew Alexander. And the presumption is, they became Christians. (laughs) Simon of Cyrene carried the cross for Jesus, and later on his family started to believe. So it might just be the same with Malchus. We don't know. You can't tell. But it's possible that Malchus, having been through what he'd been through, having had his own little semi-private miracle, started to realize that Jesus was more than just a maverick, uh, a rabble-rouser, preacher, whatever. He was somebody who uh, was, 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 was somebody who was more than a rabbi, somebody who really was the Son of God. Then we've got the final one, and that's Jesus What did Jesus think was going on? Well, I suggested that the words he would have used are, a cup was being drained. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was once approached by two of his disciples. And he said, listen, we know about this kingdom you're going to come into. You're going to be the king, aren't you? Can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? Can we just get our bid in first so that we can be your special lieutenants and and, and, and most important in your kingdom? Don't tell the other guys, but we would like to be up there. In fact, it's our mum that would like us to be up there, but that's another story. And Jesus just looks at them and says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And, uh, yes, no, uh, don't know. What's this about a cup? And clearly Jesus saw what was going to happen to him in terms of drinking something very, very bitter indeed. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying to his father and the other disciples are all falling asleep, Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet... Not my will, but yours be done. And next one, Kev, he was in absolute agony at that point, And he did not know exactly what was going on. Now, this takes us back to the early years of Jesus' life. Do you remember the one story we have from his childhood? is when he's 12 years old, <laughs> and his family have taken him down to Jerusalem for a festival. And they've gone home thinking that he's in the crowd of kids that are going back to, to uh, um, Nazareth with them. And they find out he's not in the crowd. They thought he was with somebody else's family, but none of the other families seemed to have him. They go back to Jerusalem, and there he is in the temple, talking to the religious leaders, and holding his own with them as well. Because they're all thinking, how does this kid know the scripture so well? He's only 12, but he knows the Bible so well. And clearly Jesus' childhood was absorbed with understanding God's law, making sense of it, pouring over the scriptures, and you find as he goes on through life, He reads the Bible over and over and over and becomes convinced that those Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, the one who's to come, the one who will be born in Bethlehem and then stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord his God, all of those prophecies are pointing towards him. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. All of those promises Come down to him. But he also sees in the book of Isaiah over and over again the promises of the suffering servant. The fact that this Messiah is not going to be a a straightforward success. He's going to have to suffer in incredible ways. 
His face is going to be so marred that it doesn't look like a human face anymore. He's going to bear on his back the burden of the sin of the ages. And Jesus sees this as a bitter cup he's going to have to drink. And so as the moment approaches, he's conscious that this is what's happening. And what he says is, this has taken place. And he says it twice in this passage, doesn't he? This has all taken place so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is the trajectory I've been on for the whole of my life. This has been what God has been planning for the last thousands of years. In fact, before time was, because I was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus' whole career on earth has been heading towards what's going to happen here. And we can see the next one. And Jesus knows that a cup is being drained. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And so the only person really who understands what's going on here is Jesus. The others have their own version of it, which is false. And only in Jesus' version do you realize what's taking place here. He could have resisted. He could have run away. He could never have been there in the first place. Why did he go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Because when, G- when Judas left the Last Supper, clearly he was going to start the, 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 the gathering of the soldiers and the, 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 the rabble that were going to arrest Jesus. And the first place he would have come would have been back to the upper room. When he found that Jesus and the disciples weren't there, the, the first thing he would have thought, of, well, where does Jesus go after a meal at night? I know where he goes. And so he'd have taken him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus knew very well. And he'd gone to either, any other garden in Jerusalem that night. He might have given them the slip. But he carried on because he knew this confrontation had to come. So, next one, if we can, please. Uh, what this shows us, I think, is that Jesus was the, I can't even read it back there, the final vital piece in the jigsaw of God's plan. That's really what was going on here. And that's what we find out through this story. And that leaves us next one with four things that can't be said. When you understand what was really happening in this story, there are four things you cannot say. The first of them was what, I guess, Judas tried to say to start with. I can use Jesus for my own purposes. No, you can't. (laughs) If you try to use Jesus, you find he won't be used because he knows more than you do. Because you can't cut corners with the Son of God. Because compromises and half-loyalties won't do. You're either in or you're out. And Judas tried to play the system so that he could be a follower of Jesus and yet not a follower of Jesus. And Jesus isn't impressed by behavior like that. And the tragic thing about Judas was he pushed himself so far in both directions that in the end there was no way back. And he's called the son of perdition. The one who is the... The, the, the child of lostness, because there was no way back for him. We can't either say, it seems to me, what uh, Peter was saying most of the way through the Gospels, right up to the point where he denied Jesus. I can disagree with Jesus when I need to. I can follow him and be wholehearted in my following of him and yet still think I know better than him at some points. And so when he says to me, go there, there I'll say, not so, Lord. No, 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 that's not right. I don't want to do that. It's not what I choose to do. And Peter always thought he knew better than Jesus until the point where he finally let him down and then he was absolutely shattered. And you see that conversation that Jesus has with Peter after the resurrection, don't you? On the seashore at the Lake of Galilee. We're saying, do you really love me, Peter? Do you really? 
Do you mean that? Are you so sure about this? Are you absolutely convinced? And Peter says, look, you know everything. (laughs) And he begins to realize Jesus knows a lot more than he does. It's at that point that Jesus can say to him, okay, now you've got that in place, Peter. I've got a job for you. Third, I think we can't say what Malchus said initially. I can shut Jesus up in a box and ignore him. Just another rabbi, just another rabble rouser, just another prophet that can be forgotten about. Malchus realized both in in Jesus' attitude and in the miracle that had happened to his own ears, there's something special going on here. Now, whether Malchus acted on that, that insight and became a Christian or whether he just sank back into the background and thought, no, no, I'm the high priest slave and this is all too complicated for me, I don't know. But you can't say this, can you? I can just shut him up in a box and leave him. If Jesus is who he says he is, And if he does the things that he did for Malchus, then clearly you can't just leave him to one side. And Jesus, uh, finally, perception that the cup had to be drained, leaves us incapable of saying, look, I can walk away from Jesus. Because in walking away from Jesus, if he's right, and all he was doing was fulfilling a plan that God had done right down through history, you're walking away from the real meaning of history. So I guess as we go into another week, What the trial of Jesus is saying to us is, are you ever tempted to think any of those thoughts? Are you ever tempted to take any of those attitudes? Because the trial of Jesus says, you can't. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, this is a passage of scripture that's got all sorts of different thoughts and motives and conflicting ways of doing things going on in it. But we can see ourselves in the attitudes of some of those people. We can be tempted to be like Judas and belong and yet not belong to pursue our own agenda first. Or we can be like Peter and just disagree with you at some points but still not do your will because we have a better idea. Or we can be like Malchus and just dismiss the Son of God completely. In which case, as we said, we miss out on the whole meaning of history. Wherever we are in our relationship to you, or in our need to find one, we pray that you help us do it right. For your name's sake. Amen.